0: Welcome to Stigma's Toll, a podcast series to reduce the stigma of opioid use disorder through education. I'm Eric Clemenson, a licensed alcohol and drug counselor, as well as a graduate student at the University of Minnesota in the Executive Public Health Administration and Policy Program. This podcast will discuss substance use disorder, SUD, which is a technical term for addiction. Opioid use disorder, OUD, False under this umbrella, but is specific to those who have an addiction to opioids, such as heroin, fentanyl, or painkillers. Each episode will have a topic introduced by me, followed by an interview with an expert on the topic. Now to the episode The current opioid crisis was spurred by the overprescribing of opioids which led to misuse and then expanded to heroin and fentanyl, which are much more lethal and addictive. There have been multiple theories for addiction. However, they all fall into four categories. These are the traditional pleasure and withdrawal, habit, incentive sensitization, and cognitive dysregulation. The pleasure and withdrawal explanation speaks to the euphoria of drugs and the negativity of withdrawal. Habit speaks to the repetition of drug use, leading to a stimulus-response learning, causing routine. Incentive sensitization speaks to the want system of the brain. Lastly, the cognitive dysregulation speaks to the loss of control, due to the changes to the cortical systems of the brain. The causes of addiction are hard to pinpoint. However, there are some aspects that contribute. Such as how the continued use of opioids disrupts circuits in the brain that are required for the prefrontal cortex, which is where we self-regulate. Changes to these circuits creates impulsiveness and compulsivity, as well as makes the person more vulnerable to depression, anxiety, and irritability. Once one has these brain changes, it is harder for them to tell the brain no, don't use as drug use can be a maladaptive coping skill for many with increased depression, anxiety, and irritability. They are more likely to seek these drugs to cope with these negative feelings. In this episode, we will discuss the most up-to-date information regarding the theory of addiction from our expert. Opioids work on the same receptors as endorphins, which are released during exercise, excitement, orgasm, and pain. However, These external opioids create intense feelings of euphoria through the increased release of dopamine. The brain then gets used to this increased level of dopamine and starts to demand more. These changes can be seen as when someone who is dependent on opioids is shown something that reminds them of using, it creates an intense craving, which has been shown in brain imaging as the brain is expecting and desiring opioids. These changes in brain activity are what makes substance use disorder and opioid use disorder a brain disease, and not just a behavioral issue or moral failing. For the scientific background regarding opioid use disorder, the expert we have today is Dr. Mark Thomas, who is a professor of neuroscience at the University of Minnesota, and the director of the Medical Discovery Team on Addiction a new research program funded by the Minnesota legislature to fuel cross-disciplinary collaborations and discover new treatment options. This research examines how addictive drugs alter the brain and how these changes can lead to compulsive drug use. His lab is now focusing on ways to disrupt addictive relapse. This team researches addiction and are trying to find new ways to treat it. During our interview, Dr. Mark Thomas, explained some of what the medical discovery team on addiction is and how they are hoping to design transformative therapies to battle addiction. He spoke to the dopamine system in the brain, how it is important to addiction, and how it plays a role in helping us do things that are important for survival. He spoke to the misconception that people use drugs for pleasure, which adds to the stigma as many believe that drug users are being selfish and seeking pleasure. He explains that just because drugs release dopamine, it does not mean that pleasure is the draw to keep using. He reports that the science doesn't back up the pleasure-seeking theory, which I mentioned earlier in the introduction. Instead, it is better explained as though once used, the brain thinks that we need to use drugs for survival, so pleasure is not even in the equation. The brain simply is saying, there is something important to survival in the environment. Keep doing that. Dr. Mark Thomas explained that with advances in neuroimaging, they are able to view the brain's functions in real time, which is very important to advancing research. The most exciting and biggest advancement that he spoke to is the idea of neurostimulation as a therapy for addiction to help create new pathways in the brain They already have used this process to help manage Parkinson's disease with great success. The hope is that through this stimulation, they may be able to cure addiction or at least make it more manageable. Now, please enjoy the interview. Hey, Eric. Hey, Mark. Thank you so much for being here. Why don't uh, we begin by, would you like to introduce yourself?
1: Yeah. So my name is Mark Thomas. I'm a Professor in the neuroscience department at the University of Minnesota, and I have a role as a director of the medical discovery team on addiction.
0: Thank you. Do you mind explaining a little bit what the medical discovery team on addiction is?
1: Yeah, this is a state funded research team that's focused on understanding the biological underpinnings of addiction and using what we learn to design what we hope will be transformative therapies to battle addiction.
0: That's amazing. That's very important work. So what do we know about the brain and addiction?
1: So something I forgot to say about the team, there are now over 60 faculty who comprise 25 people who are really primarily focused on addiction research and others who are in more supporting roles, but including the faculty and all the staff and students who are participating in the team, it's over 200 people here at the university. So it's a big group of us all trying to work out these biological mechanisms. It's a complicated problem. And of course, people have been working on it for many decades, but we have some new tools and and resources and expertise that we can apply to this problem. So we're optimistic that we can make some advances and turn them into new treatment options.
0: Wow, 200 people, that sounds like a lot of amazing things happening. It's a
1: lot of people. (laughs) Yeah,
0: definitely moving us forward, so that is great to hear. So how does opiate use disorder affect the brain?
1: Yes, so a lot of what we know about how drugs that people use and sometimes overuse affect the brain comes from studies in animal models, to be honest, because it's hard for various reasons to study the sort of detailed biological mechanisms in people. And it's hard for various different reasons. One reason is that we often don't start to examine people and their neural function until after they've been exposed to different kinds of drugs that humans might uh, overuse. And and maybe that point had a lot of Experience with drugs, and so we don't know if, if, if their brain function might have been like that originally, or was it that way because they were exposed to drugs? And so I have just a difficult time teasing out those neural factors that might relate to addiction in in people. It's been a really challenging problem to get around on the research front, and for that reason, and because we can do so many more measurements in Animal brains, and because mammalian brains have a lot of similarities from one species to the next, including what their reward circuits look like, that's affected by drugs of abuse. A lot of what we learn comes from the animals. And so back to your question, what do we know? What we know is that all the drugs that have psychoactive effects that some people have difficulty stopping to take once they've started affect the dopaminergic system, that is affect the neurotransmitter dopamine Mm -hmm. in reward circuits in the brain. So that's something now that we've known for a number of decades and a lot of the research in our field has been trying to understand that role for this neurotransmitter dopamine and, and how this compulsive drug seeking that, that people might, some people might show. All the different drugs that people can have difficulties with, whether it's alcohol, um, tobacco products that contain nicotine, cocaine, methamphetamine, or opioids, all affect this dopamine system. And that's one reason why there's been so much focus on it, because the pharmacological targets for each of these different kinds of drugs are very different, but yet they all feed into this central kind of dopamine circuit that is we know important for our survival. This the dopamine serves a function normally to direct our behavior towards what we would call natural rewards, opportunities to eat nutritious food, to have sex and reproduce, to build social networks that help to protect us and our kin. And opioids are no different than the other drugs. They affect this system as well. And we think that is uh, a driving force behind what can lead some people, no matter how they start taking opioids. Maybe they start taking them for r- reasons of pain management. but might progress to taking them in in an uncontrolled fashion and that we think that the brain changes in the dopamine system are involved in that.
0: Gotcha. Makes sense. So you mentioned dopamine is a big player in the reward circuits. So do opiates and the other drugs increase the dopamine or decrease it or how does that work?
1: It's been an interesting journey to understand how these different kinds of drugs affect dopamine, the first thing that we learned as a field, which was now information that's decades old, is that a single exposure of any of these drugs can influence and and enhance dopamine signaling in the short term while the drug is in the system. But it's been much harder to understand how that dopamine response changes over time with repeated drug exposure. It, It doesn't look like that the key to understanding addiction from our current data, doesn't look like it's in understanding how that dopamine system is dysregulated over time. It doesn't seem as if the dopamine system gets irreparably damaged or something like that, and that would relate to, to addiction in a direct way. But it looks like it does produce a kind of chain of events that lays down what we could call maladaptive memory traces in the brain's reward circuits that can lead to both compulsive drug-seeking and drug-taking behavior that characterizes addiction.
0: Very interesting information there. But actually, I want to go back a little bit. Uh, when you were explaining what the medical discovery team on addiction is, you had mentioned some new tools that you're coming up with. Can you expand yes. on that anymore and what's going on there?
1: Yeah, there's been a real explosion in technology and the neuroscience field in general. In the last 10 to 15 years, one real interesting realm has been in neural imaging so looking at different ways to assess brain function using imaging tools one example of that is that we now have the ability in behaving animals like rodents to examine ongoing signaling between neurons brain cells while an animal is engaging in some kind of behavior that we can measure and and while it's experiencing the effects of a psychoactive drug like heroin or cocaine. And that is just blowing everyone's mind in our field because it opens up all kinds of opportunities to study things that were previously untouchable. And so combining that with imaging that we can do here at the University of Minnesota that not too many places have available magnetic resonance technology, MR imaging, to look across the entire brain, to look at kind of brain dynamics, that is activity connecting one part of the brain to another over time. There's an incredible number of new options that we have to do experiments where we're measuring brain activity. And that's really been one of the frontiers, and as a group, we have a good handle on these different kinds of technology, and are actually actively working on making them even better tools along these lines to look at brain activity that changes over time if we do these kind of what we call longitudinal measurements, looking at the same subject again and again during different phases of drug exposure.
0: Wow, I didn't know that this was happening. I've seen some about how we can look at the brain and see how addiction affects it, but it tends to be those pictures with the red spots that have more activity and things like that. So, yes, yes. This is a, a huge advancement, it sounds like.
1: Yeah, this is the, really the next level. It's the next level resolution that we have. And so, you can look at smaller and smaller regions of the brain. And, like I said, in some cases, individual nerve cells and how they're communicating with others it also it's advanced in temporal resolution instead of looking over the course of a number of seconds over which for the nervous system is an incredibly long time because things are acting on the at the speed of milliseconds now we're paring it down so we can look over shorter and shorter time scales so looking more on the time scales of when the, the language of the nervous system really, that's what it works on. These very short time scales and very small spaces. So I'll give you, I'll give you one other example of a technology that uh, was something that was developed out of Stanford back in the mid uh, 2000s. I mean, this is a technique called optogenetics, and this is taking advantage of light sensitive proteins that function as what we call ion channel. And when you shine a light on a cell that contains one of these proteins, the protein opens up and forms a channel so that electrical Particles can flow through into the cell and produce an electrical signal, which is what neurons work on. They work on these kinds of electrical signals. And so this kind of approach allowed us to using those proteins and then putting them into specific neurons in the brain gives us the opportunity to activate those neurons with light. And this has really useful properties to test hypotheses that have been around for a long time, but we didn't know how to test, of what's kinds of neural activity. How do they relate to an animal's cognition or behavior? So this is another one of these kind of, for us, mind-blowing tools that opens up opportunities to test all kinds of things. We wanted to test for decades, but didn't have the opportunity to do. So it's, it's a really exciting time to be doing this kind of work because of these tools that are available. And we're seeing an influx of excited young people wanting to to come in the field and answer questions that are really age old questions that we now have a chance to address.
0: It really sounds like you all have advanced like light years beyond the last things I've heard about, which was like, activating parts of the brain with the electricity and things like that. You all really are on the, the frontier of the new understanding of addiction. So what are some of the misconceptions regarding opiate use disorder you hear most often?
1: I think so the misconceptions that we hear most often are that are, don't necessarily relate only to opioids, but are more in common across different d- drugs that people might use, that people are using them for pleasure. I think whether or not it's something that people come right out and say is sort of an assumption that many people make that that drug use is just a very kind of selfish pleasure seeking activity. And that I think that feeds into this incredible stigma that we see with with opioid use disorder, but the use disorders across the board, no matter what substance it might be. And I think it's a really unuseful way to think about addiction. And it's actually a harmful way to think about it because that is really not what we understand to be the case from the most advanced neuroscience information that we have available. So, I, I mentioned the, the dopamine system earlier, and the first idea scientists had about what dopamine's role might be in the brain was that when dopamine is released, as can happen, as does happen with exposure to drugs that people sometimes overuse, when dopamine is released, that is a signal to the brain that pleasure is it's it's the signal that mediates pleasure in the brain so mm-hmm. dopamine equals pleasure that was like the first idea that people had that was pretty straightforward because it did seem to be released during these experiences that were clearly pleasurable mm-hmm. and so it made sense but as we as a field started to look into this more deeply more directly that did not hold up that hypothesis did not end up holding water. Dopamine produces uh, what turns out to be a much more complicated kind of signal. And the Mm. signal is more related to what we would call a do-it-again signal. So this is something that signals to the brain, we think, an event that happens that is important for the survival of an individual. And so rather than the experience of pleasure like when, when a dopamine uh, signal goes up, it's signaling, there's something in your environment that you need to pay attention to, you need to remember, and you need to, if at all possible, do it again to get to this place where you get this signal because this is something that's important for your survival. And wow. and to me, it actually has this really important practical implication for how we think about addiction, because if that's what these drugs do to feed into that system that says, this is important for your survival, then it's a much different way of thinking about what people are experiencing when they have trouble stopping to seek and, and take these drugs, because their nervous system, whether or not they're consciously aware, which is probably something they're not consciously aware, <laughs> mm-hmm. is telling them, you got to do this. This is important for your survival. That huge dopamine blast that you're getting means that this experience is something you need to do again. And so whether or not it's pleasurable or however they experience it in terms of their emotions, there's another piece at play, an important piece that's actually evolutionarily very old and very baked into the system. That's a system that's telling them do this again
0: i've never heard that before well that's a shame
1: (laughs) and that's the message we're trying to get out there this is based on the most recent science and i don't think that information is out there for people to to get and i and i hope that it it changes the way that people think about stigma for this and other mental illnesses and mental disorders
0: yeah because i was always taught because the dopamine there was a pleasurable effect which is could really add to the selfish or the feeling that people who use are selfish and things like that. So if we just look at it as it's a do it again signal, then really that could reduce a lot of the stigma that we're looking at.
1: I hope so. I hope so.
0: Yeah, that is very powerful. So speaking of stigma, have you seen the stigma of addiction affect your research at all?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I, I wouldn't say that it affects the research directly, but I do feel that it diminishes the potential for philanthropic efforts. To be honest, we, as all scientists are, we're in a constant game in a way to find funding for the research mm-hmm. that we want to do that's how the system is built and so we're we're lucky enough to have good support from the federal government for this kind of work but it's it's not always enough to fund the work that we feel like we could be doing that to uh, get as far as we can in order to find new tr- effective treatments and we're trying to find money from Philanthropists who might be willing to contribute to this, and compared to money you might find for childhood cancer efforts, not to throw them under the bus because they need—they <laughs> <laughs> need their money too for very right. good reason. Yeah, I think it's harder. It's harder to find somebody who might want to put their name on a building that houses addiction research because do they want to be associated with that? So I, I think right. I think that it, it is something that families who are struggling with this, there's a certain amount of shame at at times, and that that factors into the stigma, and and so it, it influences indirectly research efforts, because I think that it diminishes the resources that as a society we put towards this. That said, the government does recognize that this is a big problem. You hear about it pretty often these days in terms of the opioid epidemic Mm -hmm. and and just how many people are are overdosing. And many of those are fatal. And obviously, you've got a a large problem to deal with that that most people in public works understand
0: and that is good that the government is funding a lot of this research but really you always could use more you know money to do more research so if private people are less likely to donate because of the stigma of addiction yeah that could make a big difference unfortunately in how much research we we can actually get accomplished
1: it, it, it really does. It really does. It's, it's incredibly time consuming <laughs> to mm-hmm. pursue the federal funding. And I'm not saying that pursuing philanthropic funding doesn't also take time, but it, it consumes uh, a large percent of our time as uh, researchers, as faculty members to write and rewrite, <laughs> frankly, many times grants. So, you know, if, if we had other sources uh, that that could free up quite a bit of time to do the actual work we know we need to do to solve the problem.
0: And yeah, that's good to know. It's something like I don't normally think about. So, it's good to yeah. get that information out there as well. So, if there was one thing you wish the public knew about addiction, what would that be?
1: Yeah, I do think we we touched on it there mm-hmm. because I think this idea that this is not a a moral failing. It's a biological failing. These drugs are tapping into a system that was built for another purpose. And, and that other purpose was to ensure our survival as individuals and as a species. These are evolutionarily ancient brain circuits mm-hmm. that these substances have co-opted. And I think if you can think about it that way, it's, it turns it into something that I think would give most thinking people more mm-hmm. compassion for, for those suffering with this disorder. And there's a lot of debates in, in the community about, can we call this a disease or a disorder or what, how do we refer to this? And I, I think everyone's got a, a point about this, and, and so people feel that calling it a disease makes it seem hopeless and insurmountable and and if you're somebody who's struggling knowing that you have something that other people would call a disease makes you feel more helpless well that's not going to sit well with you and that makes Mm -hmm. complete sense on the other side of it some people feel that now that they understand that they have something that is biologically different in them that one could refer to as a disorder is incredibly freeing they think Mm -hmm. oh my gosh i thought it was that i was such a screw up and now i I understand yeah yeah that that, so it's Funny how I just read articles using this term of the disease model. I think is a little bit beside the point. There, it, it's incontrovertible that there are biological effects of these drugs, and that we you know the more we know about them, the the better we the better chance we can use that information to really make even more effective treatments for people who are suffering because we do not have enough effective treatments as it is.
0: So, talking about effective treatments, do you have any hopes for like future advancements or like where we might end up with all this research being done?
1: Yes. So, we've got a, a few different things that we're excited about. One one thing that sort of plays through a, a number of different projects that we're working on now relates to the idea of neurostimulation as yeah. a therapy. And yeah, I think most oftentimes people when they think of a new therapy of some kind, they're thinking of some kind of drug therapy for drugs. And that there there may be something along those lines. But because we know that people suffering with substance use disorder, there are changes in the brain that are not neurodegenerative changes, like the loss of different kinds of neurons or something like that, like you might see in Alzheimer's or Parkinson's disease. So it's a rewiring disorder rather than something that's what we call neurodegenerative. So with something like rewiring disorder, there's the potential for us to stimulate the brain in ways that produces a kind of beneficial rewiring that can, in a sense, fix the problem that drugs had produced. And in the animal models, this is becoming more and more possible. And so we can produce groups of rats or mice that have characteristics like drug-seeking behavior. Mm -hmm. And by stimulating the brain in very specific ways, we can unravel and defuse those changes that drugs had wrought and return the animal's behavior to more kind of normal functioning where they don't respond to drug-associated cues and contexts in exaggerated ways like they might have prior to this sort of neurostimulation therapy. So it sounds in some ways like applying that to people is sort of you know, in the realm of science fiction, but for Parkinson's disease, one of the chief kinds of therapies that's now in much more regular use is a neurostimulation therapy, brain stimulation, electrodes surgically implanted down into the brain of somebody usually who, you know, has medication resistant Parkinson's symptoms and stimulation through that electrode produces really very clearly beneficial effects. So now that people had tremors that were uncontrollable and kept them from normal movement patterns can be disrupted. And so now somebody who had trouble walking now is, is able to strut down the hallway. It's not, I think, as far-fetched as it might seem at first glance to somebody who's not too familiar with, with modern neuroscience. But, but one thing that's in our way there is trying to understand those circuits that, we call them circuits because our best um, analogy is to a computer, those brain circuits that are really the chief players in this kind of addiction problem. And and we know a lot more about motor circuits that are involved in Parkinson's and that get disrupted in Parkinson's than we st- still do about addiction-related circuits. So that's where the imaging I mentioned earlier comes in. With As we continue to use that kind of technology, we'll learn more about where and when we can provide neurostimulation that might be beneficial to disrupt people's cravings for drugs that could lead them to relapse.
0: That is very exciting. <laughs> like working in the field, I jumped to, yeah, a new drug... Uh, therapy or something like that, that we would be looking at. That really almost sounds like it could be going the way of a cure of some uh, sort, hopefully someday. Yeah,
1: we don't want to set our sights too low. We're thinking about things that could really make this, even if it's not a full-on cure, a Mm -hmm. much more manageable problem That not nearly as many people are going to die from, you know, that's obviously one of our our big concerns right off the bat. I I mentioned the deep brain stimulation that's useful for Parkinson's, but another area relating to this is non-invasive brain stimulation. So that's also on our radar This idea that you might be able to produce beneficial kinds of neurostimulation without having to do brain surgery, just from attaching electrodes to a skull cap, which that kind of Technology's been around for a while, but it's still really in development in terms of being able to make the kinds of very specific stimulation to specific brain areas that might be necessary to produce a therapeutic effect. But that's, so looking like really far down the road, that's something that maybe could be done in a facility without a lot of super fancy equipment. Yeah. I think
0: you've made me more excited about the future of addiction <laughs> than I have been in a very long time. Wow,
1: that's great to hear. That's yeah, great to hear.
0: I wish more people in the field knew about this information. I can't wait to tell some of my co-workers.
1: Let's spread the word.
0: Yeah, because I haven't heard of any of this. If someone just go in and use a skull cap and get everything rewired to at least help with some of the cravings, that could make a huge difference.
1: Yeah, that's what we're aiming towards.
0: Yes, please work me out of a job. That is (laughs) is the hope someday. (laughs) That would be amazing. Yeah. So I know you had mentioned that compassion is important for us to have for people with substance use disorder. Is there anything else that you can think of that would help us like improve the health of those with substance use disorder or opiate use disorder?
1: I think having this kind of harm reduction framework is a really useful thing. And there are always arguments about whether that's gonna promote further or condone drug use, and I don't buy into it. Mm -hmm. I think that this is really, in terms of public health, we really just have to think about harm reduction and what can we do that's going to improve the health of people right now. And it just makes so much sense to use those kind of principles in, in our work. And so I hope that the People in the field continue to beat the drum on that one and Mm -hmm. don't knuckle under to the (laughs) forces in society that are keeping that approach at bay. And you see it in the news in recent times here where people who are trying to work out harm reduction strategies are being thwarted at different levels of of, uh, public policy. And and I just hope we can stay the course. Mm
0: -hmm. Definitely. I believe it was Philadelphia where there was some backlash over a safe consumption site. So yeah, that got stopped. But yeah, fortunately, we have the New York City sites. Any like last things you'd want to have the audience know or any last words of wisdom or anything?
1: Boy, I may have used all the words <laughs> of wisdom I had. <laughs> There's a lot of them.
0: So <laughs> definitely. Thank you so much. I yeah can't thank you enough. Thanks, Eric. All Take right. care. Good talking with you take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of Stigma's Toll. All references will be available in the episode description. Please share this podcast series with anyone who you believe may be interested. Please feel free to send me a message either on my anchor.fm profile page or through the link in the description. Please stay tuned for the next episode.